a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm not here to think for you. Certainly not here to tell you what to think. But I am definitely here to offer some content that hopefully provides you a little bit different vantage point than a lot of the mass media information that's available to you. As well as the misinformation that they're pumping at you 24-7. I'll never claim to have all the answers here, but... I have come to understand that uh, when it comes to speaking to the brainwashed, the first step is recognizing that, uh, yeah, I'm one of them. And every single one of us, in some way, shape, or form, is trying to find our way out of that swamp of misinformation and to find the truth. I certainly don't have all the answers, but I am doing my level best to find the people who have left markers along the trail this way out of the swamp. And I'm leaving markers for the people who are behind me and very grateful to the ones ahead of me who were kind enough to do so, knowing that we're all in our own way trying to get to what matters, what is real versus what isn't. And sometimes this can be a tough tough sell in the sense that there are some pretty unpleasant truths that are unfolding in front of us right this moment. You know, just for example, you know, the, the implosion of the economy, the fact that, you know, your money buys less every single day. Gas is costing more, as you're going to hear in the show later this hour. We'll talk about how those gas prices affect the price of everything. We've got uh, World War III still shaping up, you know, and people actually actively cheering it on. I mean, how many people know where Lithuania is, is located, right? And yet uh, there are people with a straight face saying, well, you know what? The world dying in a nuclear war is a small price to pay for us standing by our commitments. Yes, you know, it's... Nobody's thinking of an alternative like perhaps uh, this wouldn't even be necessary if, in fact, we were making, you know, commitments that actually matter or, for, for that matter, minding our own business and taking care and putting our own house in order first. Nonetheless, as, I, as I'm sure you're well aware, there's a lot of stuff that's going wrong. It's important to keep a positive attitude. Why? Well, okay, for what it's worth, this is my best shot at why we should keep a positive attitude. The stuff that's happening right now is pivotal. Even though it's it seems very, you know, large scale and my goodness, I'm just a little person among the, you know, nearly, you know, 7 billion people in the world, what kind of difference could I make? But I'm very much of the opinion that uh, there's purpose in every single one of our lives and we all have spheres of influence. Some of those some of the some of the spheres of influence that people can draw around them are just, you know, their family, their <clears throat> immediate coworkers or, you know, their immediate neighbors. Sometimes that circle can be small, but it's a very real circle nonetheless. Now for other people that uh, circle can be much much larger. But it's how we use our influence that counts. And even little acts of kindness or courage or encouragement, for that matter, make a far bigger difference than you think. And I know it may sound, you know, like I'm overstating this, but when I say the world is counting on you to do the right thing, it's true. Even if that right thing is something very small and seemingly minor, 
So to keep a positive attitude, try to be aware of the good things in your life. Actively notice the things that are good. I know that's tough. I have a, I don't know what it is right now. There, there are a number of people in my life who are really struggling with car problems. And this is one of my least favorite challenges. When, when the car starts to go on the fritz, I mean, you know, it's, it's expensive. There's nothing cheap about fixing your car these days, but that, you know, your transportation is limited. Your mobility can be limited. It's, it's just so stressful, but be aware of the good things in your life. And when you go to describe yourself, use positive words. We all like to engage in a little self-deprecating humor, but let's not forget that, uh, again, it's not an accident that you are alive at this time and this place. There's purpose in this. You figure out what that purpose is, or you start to tap into that purpose, and life takes on a much, much deeper meaning. Everything changes for the better. Even the tough times are for the better when you start to tap into that purpose. It's important to surround yourself with positive people and at the same time to be the kind of positive person that others can surround themselves with. Sometimes it's helpful to not have expectations. I can't tell you how many times in my own life I was disappointed because I expected this to happen and it didn't and now I'm disappointed. Nobody owes you anything. No one is coming to your rescue. And sometimes, just, you know, as a product of the laws that govern this world, you and I are going to experience loss. We're going to experience disappointment. We're going to experience pain. So we need to practice dealing with those things. We need to practice dealing with rejection. And if you keep moving forward and keep looking for the opportunities to see the good around you and to lift the people around you, even the tough stuff becomes a lot easier to bear. By the way, if you want to see a really good example of how that works, get your hands on Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. This was a guy who survived concentration camps. This was a guy who saw the very worst that humanity could do to one another. And his insights are absolutely priceless. All right, on that happy note, welcome to the show. Some great sponsors make this possible on a daily basis. They include Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, also Monticello College, Life-Saving Food, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Well, you've likely heard of the, uh, you've heard people talk about the coming economic storm, but have you ever stopped to think about how long that storm has been building? I've got a great article here from Dr. Brian, or actually, I guess it's Brian C. Jundef. I believe he is a medical doctor. Um, this is published on AmericanThinker.com. And he brings up something that I really haven't thought about, but uh, sure enough, back in 2017, President Donald Trump, while meeting with a group of military leaders in the White House, cryptically warned of the calm before the storm. And when reporters said, well, what is that supposed to mean? He simply replied, you'll find out. Now, there's been a lot of speculation since then about what storm was Trump referring to, ranging from overturning a fraudulent election to devolution. So while his comments from five years ago remain inscrutable, Brian Jundef says today a real storm is on the horizon, plain to any American consumer. Now, this storm is economic, perhaps a hurricane, as J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon described it, the likes of which may be terrifying and life-changing to those caught in the maelstrom. 
But Brian Jundiff says, look, before I'm accused of hyperbole, several financial gurus have likened current economic conditions to a storm. And he actually links to a recent article where he chronicled this. For instance, an SMU professor agrees, saying, we're seeing these massive dark clouds on the horizon. So a coming storm is actually an apt description. Was the Trump presidency with $2 gas, low unemployment and inflation, peace and prosperity, the calm before the current economic storm? Did Trump know what lay ahead? Teasing out a prediction. Regardless of what President Trump was alluding to, Brian Jundef says an economic storm is definitely coming. It's not just on the horizon, but already taking its toll on hardworking Americans. Just for example, inflation is at 8.6%. Now, that's the official government number for the Consumer Price Index. This is based on a basket of goods, and depending on what's measured and how it's weighted, may may misrepresent, actually, the inflation rate facing consumers on a daily basis. For example, the Trueflation dashboard reports inflation at 13.2%, with food costs up 26.5%. That's probably something you've noticed as you've been grocery shopping. Meantime, the producer price index rose 10.8% in May, foretelling higher consumer prices soon reaching store shelves. Small business optimism fell to a new 48-year low. Pessimistic business owners will not be hiring new employees or expanding their businesses. In fact, many may close up shop instead. And, of course, anyone visiting a gas station sees the price over $5 a gallon. That's more than twice what it was a few years ago. And as most goods and services require transportation costs, meaning fuel, we can expect to see this price increase passed along to consumers through higher prices. The stock market, he says, is down bigly from the Trump days and now officially in a bear market, meaning markets are down 20% or more from their most recent all-time high. And despite the unemployment rate hovering at 3.6%, this represents only those actively seeking employment, not those who've given up looking for work. The labor force participation rate, which is a better measure of who's working and who isn't, dropped to 62.3%. That's the lowest level since the 1970s, mid-70s, excluding the months during the COVID shutdowns. And the question is, what are President Biden and his economic wizard doing, wizards rather, doing to alleviate this? You know, truth be told, there's a lot that they can't do, but there's also a lot of policies that they are enacting or upholding that are directly affecting these things we'll take a quick break we'll come back we'll talk more about the economic storm and what we can do about it this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com. Yep, we're talking food storage. We're talking emergency preparedness. Look, they still have have plenty of stocks at this time. Lots to choose from. But there is a tipping point approaching in which people are going to realize, wow, I really need that. And two things are going to happen. Number one, supply is going to dwindle because a lot of people will be snapping it up. And secondly, you're going to see prices rise as uh, scarcity of supply becomes more apparent. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to just put a cold, hard fact out there. But the time to be building up your preps and to be building your self-reliance 
is now. In fact, the best time was starting, you know, many years ago. Second best time is right this minute. Lifesavingfood.com can help you get that done. Let's go back to Brian C. Jundef's article about uh, the coming economic storm. One of the things he asked is, what are President Biden and his economic wizards doing to alleviate the problems that we're facing economically? Now, June Def reminds us that inflation is too much money chasing too few goods, a remnant of irresponsible government policy and leadership going back for decades. And this was exacerbated by copious COVID relief money paying Americans to stay home and not work or produce. But as COVID is waning, the Biden administration, rather than taking its foot off the stimulus accelerator, is continuing to create money and spend like a drunken sailor. Boneheaded energy policy reversing Trump-era energy independence has restricted energy production to the point that we are begging the Saudis for oil. Higher energy costs mean inflation and less production as it costs more to work and to produce goods and services. Now, here's the kicker. To combat inflation, the Fed must raise interest rates, ideally to above the inflation rate. That's in order to break the cycle of easy money chasing scarce goods. Now, last week, the Fed hiked its benchmark interest rate by 0.75 percentage points. That's the largest increase since 1994. And this translates into higher borrowing costs for home mortgages, business loans, credit card balances, throwing cold water on the economy. Mortgage rates have now topped 6%. That's the highest since 2008. That's going to chill the housing market. It's also going to hurt borrowers who have adjustable rate mortgages. And as the economy slows, we inch closer to a recession. One more quarter of negative GDP prices places us in a recession, hitting the trifecta along the way with a bear market and runaway inflation. I did warn you that uh, there wasn't going to be a ton of good news, right? Okay. Is this what Biden and his handlers meant by build back better? Brian Jundiff says, speaking of Biden, his approval rating fell to 39% in its third straight weekly decline. It's approaching the lowest level of his presidency, according to a Reuters Ipsos opinion poll. Rasmussen reports confirms, showing Biden at about 40% approval, nearly 10 points lower than Trump at similar points in their presidencies. So despite the hot air emanating from the White House, Americans recognize the coming economic storm. Consumer sentiment plunged plunged to the lowest level ever measured by the University of Michigan since 1952. Biden's disapproval of his job on inflation is 71 percent. He's topped Jimmy Carter's 66 percent disapproval back in 1978. And President Biden has never been more optimistic about the economy, but perhaps he's the only one. His recent fall off his bicycle is a metaphor for his presidency. So some Americans are calling it quits. The California exodus continues now to Mexico to escape high prices and rising crime rates. Can you imagine finding drug cartel and crime-infested Mexico preferable to California? What if the Fed rate hike is too little, too late? Brian Jundef asks, will there be additional interest rate increases, further increasing the cost of borrowing and producing, worsening the overall economy? As the CPI rises, government benefit programs indexed to the CPI will also pay out more money. So where does the government get this additional money, aside from simply printing it and worsening the inflation they're trying to fight? And what happens when consumers stop purchasing non-necessities, 
since they have little money left over after purchasing food and fuel. What does that mean for the rest of the economy, from travel and leisure to non-essential consumer goods? See, the axiom of stopping digging when you're in a hole is not something the Biden administration seems capable of understanding. Where does this go? Well, economist Herbert Stein wisely observed, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. That includes the U.S. economy and all of the assumed prosperity that virtually all Americans have become accustomed to. Internet entrepreneur Kim.com recently posted a Twitter thread about the world being on the brink of a major economic collapse, not because of Putin or Russia, but because America and much of the first world has been spending money they don't have. Is that the coming storm? In fact, is it here? And what are those in charge doing about it? See, this is where the rubber meets the road for me. They're investigating January 6th. They're promoting drag queens in elementary school classrooms. They're trying to neuter the Second Amendment and making it difficult for the people, the American people, to defend the rest of the Constitution and Bill of Rights. What do all those things have in common? None of them will help the economy. And this also raises the question, where are the Republicans? Are they pushing back? Are they offering a new pathway out of this economic storm? Or are they cozying up to the Democrats and corporate media trying to gut the Second Amendment? Where are the warriors when we need them? Brian Jundiff says, uh, was this the storm that Trump was referring to? Whether it was an economic storm or not, he says, buckle up as the American House of Cards is wobbly and may collapse in the months ahead. I know right now there are a number of uh, congressmen that are, you know, patting themselves on the back. Well, we have released the language of our Make Our Communities Safer Act. Lots of warm, fluffy euphemisms, but it all comes down to they are trying to enact further gun control, and it looks like one of the main things that they're trying to do is to encourage the enactment of what they call extreme protection orders or extreme something protective orders. These are red flag laws. And essentially what they are trying to do is make it so that anybody who is suspected for any reason of not being with the program, they're going to use the term mentally unstable or perhaps posing a threat to themselves or the community, that just with that mere suspicion, police can be sent to a person's home to confiscate their guns. Now, I'm sorry, you've just watched what happened after January 6th, where literally half the voters in America have been all lumped into one ball and thrown into this 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 label of, you know, they're insurrectionists. They're violent domestic extremists. Can you imagine that such laws somehow are not going to be abused or that they're only going to be used against truly violent people? See, I don't think that's the case. I think what we're seeing is a power grab on the part of politicians. And, and here's the really sad thing the more information that comes out about uh, one of the catalysts for this, and that being the Uvalde uh, Elementary School shootings, the more information that comes out, the more we start to learn police were in that building, they were armed, they had a shield, they were there and in a position to do something within three minutes of the shooter going into the building. And yet, for the better part of an hour, they stood by as this killer massacred Almost two dozen people, mostly children. 
I know this is a very unpleasant thing to say, and people think, well, what are you, why are you throwing law enforcement under the bus here? And I'm, Look, I'm just looking at the facts of they did nothing. And this is a wonderful metaphor for what uh, government's duty to protect you is all about. Government has no duty to protect you. Government and its agents have no, no personal interest in protecting what is near and dear to you. That doesn't mean you're not going to find some good people in law enforcement. You will. But if you are serious about protecting yourself, my friend, the responsibility is on you. And what that means is whatever laws, whatever words Congress wants to put on paper that try to restrict your right to keep and bear arms, you can safely ignore because the evidence is right there that they are not going to protect you in that moment of need. So don't give them any credibility. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here for Sewing and Quilting Center. They're actually located in St. George at 779 South Bluff Street. And if you are anywhere within a 200-mile radius of St. George, Utah, first of all, you're very lucky. Beautiful countryside. But you also have access to the finest sewing establishment in that part of the country. I mean, really. They've got all the machines that you could possibly need, from entry-level machines up to the very high-end, computerized, uh, you know, long-arm quilters and embroidery machines. It's all there under one roof. They know how to service all of those machines. And even if you didn't buy your sewing machine or your long-arm quilter from them, they can still service it. All their technicians are very well trained. And this is the kicker that I just I love. They will teach you how to use your machines. They'll give you lessons, free lessons, on how to use your sewing machine. Look, I understand. You know, some people are really into sewing, and if you want to get a sense of appreciation of what can be created... You should go to your county fair. Take a wander through one of the buildings that, where, where they show the, the entries that people have created. They've sewn items or quilted or whatever. And just see for yourself the amount of artistry and expertise that's out there. Maybe it'll inspire you to want to do it for yourself. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com is there to help make that a reality. Well, I thought it was a joke when a friend sent me a, a link about uh, the U.S. Navy being very focused on uh, creating pronoun safe spaces, training its recruits on how to do this. But he sent me a video, and I actually watched it and just went, whoa, this is real. I mean, it looked like I thought I was watching a children's TV show. But as I watched this video, it's maybe a five-minute long video, a guy and a gal sitting there talking about how do we create pronoun safe spaces and use inclusive language and stuff. I mean, that's a conversation certainly people can have, but as far as an official training video for Navy recruits, as my friend pointed out, he says, you know, the longer you watch that video, the more you can see the mental illness that is evident in in some of these efforts. So what I thought was a joke, it turned out to be, no, it's it's not a joke at all. In fact, Andrea Widberg, writing for AmericanThinker.com, points out how in a crisis-ridden era, the U.S. Navy is focusing on pronouns. She says, Winston Churchill memorably described British Navy traditions as rum, sodomy, and the lash. Now, in America, the lash, thankfully, is gone, and rum is for off-duty hours, but 
Sodomy, that is homosexuality, has moved front and center. The latest example is the childish video the Navy is having its members watch so they can learn how pronouns work, including avoiding misgendering fellow members of the Navy. She says our military exists to defend America against foreign enemies, whether the battle is fought overseas or, God forbid, ends on American soil. Currently, we have a lot of enemies. Biden is busy trying to get us into a hot war with Putin. China is expanding its military and geographic reach. Iran continues its efforts to develop a nuclear bomb. And North Korea already has a nuclear bomb. And while those threats face America, she says, our Navy is focused like a laser on pronouns. Now, this focus doesn't just represent a complete collapse in the military's mission. It also represents a serious threat to the military's operational efficiency. See, pronouns aren't just, they aren't actually complicated, whether in English or any other language. They're the word we substitute in lieu of nouns when referring to any person, animal, or object. A sentence such as, Mary went to her room to gather her bags and her book so that she could go to her school, becomes a clunky nightmare if we remove the pronouns. Mary went to Mary's room to gather Mary's books and bags so that Mary could go to Mary's school. Get the point? But in today's age and day, as explained by Naval Undersea Warfare Center engineers Joni Rosan and Conchi Vasquez, now attired in the ubiquitous pride clothes, pronouns aren't about the utility and clarity of the English language. They are instead there to support naval gazing, as in belly button gazing, self-aggrandizement. Thus, Conti explains in the simple tones reserved for speaking to a mentally damaged child, a pronoun is how we identify ourselves apart from our name, and it's also how people refer to us in conversations. Personalized pronouns are also a way to reduce the English language to a nonsensical joke. So, take the modern pronoun-rich sentence. Mary went to their room to gather their books and bag so they could go to their school. Now, ostensibly, that sentence is about Mary... But the literal meaning is that Mary has some sort of roommate or companion sharing her room and dogging her footsteps the entire way. Pronoun madness makes sentences even more unintelligible when you add in so-called transgender issues. There are Carol and Fred. I told you about them. She is their father. Imagine a cutting-edge, time-sensitive naval emergency. And then imagine the sailors and marines involved trying to communicate what's going on through a welter of illogical and imaginary pronouns. If they can't figure out who's doing what to whom and who is responsible for what, ships and planes crash, bullets fly, and people die. And even if they can figure it out, they may lose so much precious time that the outcome is the same. Andrea Woodberg says Obama started this grotesque practice of turning the U.S. military, a highly functional, colorblind, well-integrated, merit-based organization, into a social justice experiment. Biden has taken that misgotten experiment and run with it. And she says, I fear that a lot of people, both in the military and in America's civilian population, are going to die because of this Marxist social justice policy. So she says, I have a very simple pronoun policy. If it's reasonable to believe you're female, I'll use female pronouns for you. If it's reasonable to believe you're male, I'll use male pronouns for you. If your sex is a mystery, well, she says, I'll make my best guess, but I will not mangle English, logic, and safety to cater to your narcissism. 
I mean, I, I know some people would say, well, that's not very inclusive. But the point is, does someone really have the right to draft you into their belief, their delusion, their fantasy? And if that sounds like harsh words, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. But at some point, somebody's got to be an adult. Someone has got to stand up and, and point out the emperor's clothes do not exist. That man is parading down the street naked, and and anybody who is willing to stay tethered to reality should be able to see that and acknowledge it. I know that the guilt factor is played a lot, and, you know, when, when people say, well, LGBTQ kids, you know, kill themselves at a much higher rate, and especially, you know, transgender kids kill themselves at a much higher rate. You know, I don't doubt that. I think there is some mental confusion that's that's taking place there. And I don't say that with a sense that, you know, they're mentally, you know, deficient. I'm saying they need help in the very same way that a, a young woman who suffers from anorexia, you know, looks in the mirror and no matter how skinny she is, she could be practically skeletal. And she's still going to think, I'm too fat. I've got to lose weight. How does it serve her interests or the, the better interests of society to indulge that. Yes, you're right, dear. You may weigh only 75 pounds, but uh, you probably could stand to lose another few few pounds there. There's a disconnect. And sadly, there's also kind of a fashionable, oh, look, I can uh, I can control other people, you know, through guilt or through, you know, just simply demanding, hey, you have to be inclusive. You have to accept me. You have to do this. Look at me, stand out. Look at me. Look at me. The, the narcissism part of that can be a real thing. For some people. Look, I'm suggesting that we need to treat one another the way that we would want to be treated. And I think that means with as much compassion as we can muster, with as much understanding as we can muster. But at some point, we also need to treat each other with the respect of being tethered to reality and able to acknowledge reality. It's so funny. I I, I watched Matt Walsh's uh, film what is a woman and just him simply asking the question what is a woman when he when he would ask you know some of these very highly credentialed well i'm a professor of uh, sex and gender studies and whatnot they would get so angry they wouldn't answer the question they would do everything to evade and and when it became clear how foolish they looked trying to uh, you know engage in these mental gymnastics to somehow not answer the question that's when most of them would abruptly well this question this uh, interview is over so i guess what i'm suggesting here is have compassion for the people who struggle with gender dysphoria or who otherwise are are experiencing you know some kind of mental hardship i think that we have a duty you know, if, if especially if you're a believer, I think we have a duty to treat one another as fellow children of God. But I also think that we have a duty to remain rooted in truth and in reality. And unfortunately, in, in our time right now, that means you're going to have to be willing to swim against the tide. The popular tide right now is being carried by a tsunami of insanity. And when it reaches to, you know, formerly stalwart to... Uh, institutions like the military to where they become more concerned with pronouns and inclusivity than in defending the country yeah we got a real problem just because everyone else disconnects from reality doesn't mean you have to although it does mean you're likely to be pretty unpopular for a time 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you are one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, you're still seeing one of the hottest real estate markets that uh, most of us have ever seen. And I only mention this because if you are looking to find the home of your dreams, you've got to have your financing squared away. And doing it in a timely fashion would be a real bonus as well. That's where you need the expertise of the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So a couple things I'd like to touch on in this uh, segment. First of all, Julian Assange. That's a name some people have heard. Some people know a little bit about him. Others, uh, not so much. But whether you know it or not, Julian Assange has done more to protect your remaining freedoms than all of the world's politicians combined. Got a great article here from Thomas L. Knapp about uh, free Assange. Yes, but that's not nearly enough. Thomas Knapp points out on June 17th, UK Home Secretary Preeti Patel approved the extradition of the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States to face 18 criminal charges, one count of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion and 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act of 1917. Now, if he's convicted on all charges, Assange faces up to 175 years in prison. His final recourse is an appeal to the High Court of Justice, where, if the history of this case is any indication, he'll be told that they're all out of justice and have none for him. Now, Thomas Knapp says if justice had anything to do with it, previous courts would have thrown out the U.S. extradition request on the grounds of both jurisdiction and treaty language. The crimes of which uh, Assange is accused were not committed on U.S. soil, and Article 4 of the U.S.-U.K. Extradition Treaty forbids extradition for political offenses. But Thomas Knapp says, be clear on this, Assange is a political prisoner, held for and charged with committing journalism. He exposed war crimes committed by U.S. government forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as other illegal schemes, such as then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's attempts to have U.N. diplomats' offices bugged. Now, the U.S. government hates having its crimes exposed. And First Amendment be damned, it tries to make examples out of those who dare display its dirty laundry. While Assange obviously has more skin in the game than anyone else in this particular case, he's not the real target. The real target is the next journalist who catches the U.S. government acting illegally. So the goal is to make that journalist think twice before telling you about it. For that reason, stopping the extradition of of Julian Assange isn't enough. Nor should we settle for an acquittal in court or a presidential pardon. Crimes have been committed, and examples do need to be made of the criminals who committed them. The U.S. attorneys who filed the indictment, Tracy Dogerty McCormick, Kellen S. Dwyer, and Thomas W. Traxler, must be charged with violating 18 U.S. Code titles, 241, Conspiracy Against Rights, and 242, Deprivation of Rights Under Color of Law. In addition to any prison sentences, they must permanently lose their licenses to practice law and be disqualified for life from further employment by the U.S. government. 
Now, the same goes for their assorted co-conspirators, up to and including sitting and former presidents of the United States. Thomas Knapp says the U.S. Department of Justice must dismiss the indictment, withdraw the extradition request, publicly apologize for its crimes against Assange, and compensate him richly for years of confinement and torture at its behest. That's the absolute bare minimum. Just as Assange was not their real target, they're not ours. Our target is all the government officials who might in the future consider committing this kind of crime again. Amen, bro. Well said, Thomas L. Knapp. I've got a link to this article in the show notes. And again, I know I've, I've talked to friends over the years who are like, well, you know, Assange released uh, state secrets. He released military secrets. But they never can quite, and this is from conservative friends, people who believe, well, yes, the government should be limited and it should keep its hands off our freedoms. But for some reason, they have kind of a, a blind spot, I guess, when it comes to, uh, to, to the military. But if the military is involved, well, then they got to do what they got to do. And I'm sorry, but uh, if, if he's revealing wrongdoing, it deserves to be out there in the open. And in this case, we need to be focused on the wrongdoing on the part of our leaders and on the part of military members. Because, yes, it can happen. And it has happened, and it is happening. we got to get that pesky blind spot taken care of. All right, one final note here. Inflation is a fact of life for every one of us right now. And I've got a great article here from Daniel Butcher from the Foundation for Economic Education. Why high gas prices are a signal of more inflation to come. Because as fuel prices rise, so too does the cost of goods and services. Daniel Butcher says, where I grew up in northern Minnesota, it's easy to see the impact that economic hard times leave on disadvantaged communities. And with consumers now experiencing record high gas prices, it's safe to say that Americans, not just back in my hometown, but across the country, are experiencing undue burden. For many, rising prices bring times of sacrifice. When Americans are pinching pennies, it's hardly a comfort to hear that high gas prices can be avoided by simply buying an electric vehicle as Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg recently advised. Uh, recently advised rather. As administration officials stubbornly push for a government-driven energy transition, escalating fuel prices often leave families in a bind, where they must choose between meeting energy needs such as heating, cooling, and filling up their gas tank, or purchasing essential goods such as clothing, school supplies, and food. This dilemma, commonly known as heat or eat, makes all the difference between keeping a home warm or providing nutrition for little ones. And she says the stakes are especially high for low-income, elderly, and minority groups who spend a more significant portion of their budgets meeting energy needs. Now, unfortunately, high energy prices will eat away at their finances in more ways than one. Price hikes at the pump will likely translate into rising prices in supermarket aisles, retail stores, and more. If you want to understand the relationship between fuel and the prices of other goods and services, well, consider the classic illustration by Leonard Reed, I Pencil. The economic lesson in the form of a short essay, I Pencil explains how even a seemingly simple pencil is, in the end, the, the product of a vast and intricate network of supply chains. Reed argues that while a pencil may seem unremarkable, no one on earth knows how to create one from start to finish. And he demonstrates this by tracing the pencil's complete ancestry. 
So in the voice of the pencil itself, Reed relates, My family tree begins with what in fact is a tree, a cedar of straight grain that grows in Northern California and Oregon. Now contemplate all the saws and trucks and rope and countless other gear used in harvesting and carting the cedar logs to the railroad siding. Much of the gear that Reed refers to, trucks, logging machinery, etc., runs on fuel. Now suppose for a moment that fuel supplies decrease in Reed's illustration. The lower supply of fuel leads to more competition for fuel among logging and trucking firms, which pushes up the price of fuel. To economize on fuel, loggers may need to slow production, making lumber less abundant and more expensive for businesses that rely on lumber, like pencil manufacturers. With a reduced supply of wood, pencil production will drop, making pencils less plentiful and more costly too. And these economic principles extend far beyond just pencils. All consumer goods, from food to clothing to housing to electronics, have family trees of their own, and one ancestor they all have in common is energy. Machines must be powered, materials must be shipped, many workers still need to commute. Energy shortfalls then make goods and services more expensive across the board, reducing living standards for everyone, especially for families in need. So while a market-driven energy transition would be welcome, as economic and technological realities stand now, fossil fuels are an indispensable source for those energy needs. Fossil fuels are a key link in innumerable supply chains. And by hampering fossil fuel production, the government is hampering the entire economy in its attempts to force and rush an energy transition. And that's leading to painfully high prices, not just at the pump, but everywhere. And that pain is sharpest for the poor. Now, the disproportionate harm that rising energy costs inflict upon our most vulnerable communities foreshadows the challenges many of the rest of us will face if we stick to disruptive policies such as these. And truly, and any truly just energy transition campaign will refrain from tipping the scales in favor of specific technologies, but instead will allow consumers freedom of choice. Daniel Butcher says through market forces, we can achieve clean, abundant, and affordable energy. But it's got to happen on the terms of the market itself, not something that's being force-fed to us by bureaucrats and, you know, government officials at one level or another. I've got a link to her article in my show notes. You can access them at thebrianhideshow.com. If you scroll down to the bottom of the show notes, you'll notice a big subscribe button. Give me your email address, and I'll drop a copy of those show notes in your inbox each and every day that I do the show. You might find it a great source of uh, content for wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. This is a place where we not only gather to revel in wrong think, but it's also a place where you will find resources for wrong thinkers. Anybody who is just not content with running with the herd, but actually wants to stand on their own two feet and see the world as it really is. So I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as you can. 
which it turns out is almost a full-time job in today's weird climate. Welcome to Clown World. This is where we try to stay tethered to reality in spite of all the efforts to keep us basically spinning our wheels and wondering what's real. So we're all learning as we go. At least we should be. Hopefully, you know, we've, we learn from our earlier mistakes. We learn from the mistakes of others. And here is one of the best Twitter thread unrolls from someone who's been keeping track of the growing list of COVID oddities. Very grateful to the friend who shared this with me. And it's by no means an exclusive list, but these are some of the strange things that we have noticed or that they've noticed about COVID that others have hopefully noticed as well. And when you find people, you know, questioning the narrative, it's not because they're, uh, what was the smear I heard yesterday? Oh, a COVID minimizer. Well, you know, you COVID minimizers, you just want to pretend like it's not a real disease. Now, there are some inconsistencies here that you COVID maximizers are uh, trying to use to, to buffalo people into submission. So let's call out a few of those things. The person who sent this, this is an account, Ron Paul for POTUS. So right there, some people are going to be like, oh, great. This is going to be very freedom-oriented. But the person says, look, I'm sure I'm leaving some things out here, but many of these have nested problems beneath the surface. But the purpose of this is to capture, capture rather an incredible list of issues that demand explanation at the very least. And one of the first inconsistencies in the narrative about COVID is evidence of COVID-19 in sewage in countries in early 2019, suggesting earlier human exposure than the official narrative. Yet we're supposed to believe that China and Pakrim countries managed to thwart seasonal weather patterns via lockdown where others failed. Now that's ridiculous on its face. Secondly, the PCR test used by the world went through sham 24-hour peer review and labs used far too sensitive amplifications to find trace of COVID-19, violating human rights writ large because functioning society was shut down based on reported cases, many of which were not infectious. Why was that? Number three, cheap and effective treatments for COVID-19, like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and others, were dismissed or ignored, while crappy experimental treatments like remdesivir were pushed, and then straight to vax all, even kids, despite serious health risks. What's going on here? By the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, Miss Brazil dropped dead yesterday of a heart attack. I mean, there are millions of people in Brazil right now mourning the loss of this healthy young woman. Well, did she have the vaccine? Yes, she did, as a matter of fact. Funny you would ask. Just something to think about a lot of a lot of healthy young people seem to be meeting a very untimely demise and gee no one can quite explain why and nobody really wants to examine if uh, there might be anything to do with mm, i don't know some experimental gene therapy that uh, was administered or should i say pushed on people number four scary models were pushed making people believe all were at risk to covid19 but Diamond Prince's ship was a, was a floating Petri dish, proving all at risk was false, since proven again. Number five, the World Health Organization mysteriously changes its definition of herd immunity in the midst of the pandemic to scrub natural acquired infection from its definition and indicating that the vaccine is the only way to gain immunity. And just today, 
The World Health Organization has, has puzzlingly, puzzlingly changed its stance on vaccine kids. Scientific basis? Hmm. Number six, public health authorities are pushing the vax unethically. Ice cream incentives for kids, despite there being clear safety concerns. Some states are nixing parental consent for 13 to 17-year-olds. Number seven, there's been a complete 180 on masks generally accepted. They were not helpful outside of HC settings, people treating sick or symptomatic patients prior to COVID. Now the narrative pushes that they're essential. Fauci's private email admitting this can't shake, admitting this rather, can't shake mask zealots' belief in a false god. Number eight, politicians stuck with or sticking with draconian restrictions that produce unimaginable human suffering with zero benefit. And appallingly, they claim they do this for people's safety. Pre-COVID-19 pandemic guidelines oppose these policies. Number nine, closing schools and related restrictions was and is an unfolding human tragedy. Millions of kids lost so much, many abused, not fed, and of course the horrific humans that orchestrated these policies remain unrepentant, sickening, and revolting. Number 10, big tech and media collude to censor views that oppose or criticize official narrative, which encapsulates all that called out the atrocities outlined in points 1 through 9 above. Nobel laureates censored. This is a dystopian nightmare, half Orwellian, half Huxley, Huxley rather. God help us. And from here, the person goes on to, to uh, thank all of the people who helped to promote their awareness of these things. Now, this doesn't mean automatically. You've got to believe, okay, everything that, uh, that you've heard, uh, heard me talk about about COVID is, is absolutely right. But can we at least start by admitting that maybe there were some things that were told to us and things that were stated with absolute confidence that turned out not to be true or factual. Maybe? Look, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm certainly not the authoritative voice on this, but I'm pretty confident the experience that I had is probably pretty consistent with what a lot of other people experienced too, meaning even within my own household. There was strong disagreement on the efficacy of the vaccines and the need to to wear a mask. And I I can't explain, you know, I don't know why other than I knew from a very early point that the masks were more than simply, you know, this is a measure of protection or a sign of love and respect for the people around you. I don't know how I knew, but my conscience spoke loudly to me and said, this is not about protecting other people. This is about determining who will submit and how far people will be pushed to submit. And I'm not trying to make any kind of claim that, well, therefore I'm better than anybody else. Truth be told, during those times where, you know, the the masks were being, you know, really pushed the hardest and I was uh, resistant to wearing a mask, those were very difficult times. That was a hard time because it was a very clear, very visible way of not being in step with society. Not that being in step with society is super important, but basically it invited ridicule. It invited confrontation. It invited exclusion. And it invited a fair amount of anger from people who could not understand. Why can't you just do it? 
It's not that big of a deal. Why can't you just go along with it? I know I'm not the only one who felt this. I know that as I spoke up, other people stepped forward and said, you know what, my conscience has been telling me the same thing. This is not about protecting us. And yet, if you look around, it's still such a thing. You know, there are still, you know, there are, are governments that are still trying to, to enforce masks on people. My wife just returned from Germany, and, and I'm grateful to have her back home. And I would love to go visit Germany again, but I don't know that I would want to go under some of the conditions that their government is creating. They have proposed right now, and they're looking to pass a law that would make mask wearing a permanent part of their law, but it would require masks be worn basically October through April. So the typical cold and flu season, everywhere you go, anywhere you go in public, you got to be masked. I understand the Germans are a very rule-following people. That fondness for order, you know, contributes to it. But it's not to protect people, and it doesn't slow the spread of a virus. So what else could it be? I think it's that outward manifestation of I am willing to submit. It's a badge of compliance. You know, I'm not trying to call people out and tell you you're a bad person if you comply. I'm just saying you might want to think about this a little more deeply than some of that simplified, well, you know, it's just my part of showing my love for my fellow people by by putting this cloth on my face. You know, the tests of conscience usually aren't super obvious. It's not like somebody holding a gun to your head and saying, deny God or I will kill you. It's usually smaller, more subtle ways that test us right to the core. I'm convinced that uh, this was one of those tests. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just like to take a moment here to uh, sing the praises of Dr. Ward Wagner from Dixie Chiropractic. I was so happy when my friend Dave contacted me uh, a couple of weeks ago and said, Hey, I didn't know Dr. Wagner was one of your sponsors. He was really happy about that. Apparently, uh, Dr. Wagner is a miracle worker for Dave. Dave is Dave's an active guy. He works hard. He plays hard. And sometimes... You know, he he feels the pain of, of getting older, like we all do. But he says, man, when it comes to, to getting my back right or getting my knees right, he says, Dr. Wagner is a miracle worker. And if you are in southern Utah and you are dealing with things like bulging herniated discs or neuropathy or even car accident injuries, I would encourage you, reach out to Dixie Chiropractic. You can actually go to their website, DixieChiro.com, and see for yourself they got some wonderful intro specials that will help you out, whether you're dealing with neuropathy, bulging, herniated discs, or car accident injuries, or any other kind of pain, wear and tear on your body. Let Dr. Ward Wagner from Dixie Chiropractic get you set right. He's got a lot of resources, and I think you're going to find you're as happy as my friend Dave. That's DixieChiro.com. You know, the connection between morality and freedom is something that not everybody understands. The people who seem to have the clearest grasp on this, at least in my experience, are people who have actively spent time studying the principles and practices of liberty. 
Because, well, I think most people would agree, well, yes, liberty is a good thing. We can all agree. That's, that's something. It's, it's preferable to its opposite, right? Slavery or compulsion. But when it comes to understanding the principles upon which liberty is based and the practices that have to accompany it, you know, a lot of people seem to be under the impression, well, I, I just asked for it. You know, it's, it's mine. That's not true. My friend, Dr. Harold Pease, likes to point out that liberty has been such a rare condition among the people of this world that he, he likens it to a butterfly. And it's only people who have aligned themselves with the principles and created the conditions in which liberty can exist who are fortunate enough to have it come and alight on them. And even then, if they're not careful, they can make a wrong move and the way it goes. So I found this article from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. And she says, to gain more freedom, American morality must increase. Annie Holmquist says, American morality is in decline and the population is starting to take note. Half of Americans, a record high number, now rate U.S. morals as poor, according to a recent Gallup poll. Consideration of others is the leading indicator of this moral decline, Americans say, followed by racism and discrimination. And she says, look, we didn't really need a poll to tell us about this decline in morality. The increase in carjackings and violent crimes tell us that, as does society's fixation on deviant sexual practices and on self-absorption in general. The decaying, <laughs> the decaying morality of culture is enough to make any person who's just trying to live a decent, honest life throw in the towel and say, that's it, it's gone. There's nothing I can do about it. But she says, such a response gives up far too easily and before the fight is over. Now, Annie Holmquist says, there is a solution to the decay of our nation, and it was laid out by one of our founding fathers in the first year of our independence from Britain. Speaking in his 1976 sermon, The Dominion of Providence Over the Passions of Men, Declaration signer John Witherspoon noted that nothing is more certain than that a general profligacy and corruption of manners make a people ripe for discussion. Destruction, rather. Sorry. Such destruction may be prevented if a good government is in place, he said, but only for a time. For beyond a certain pitch, even the best constitution will be ineffectual and slavery must ensue. Now, many in America may well wonder if we've gone beyond that certain pitch. For some elements of slavery or lack of freedom seem to proliferate across our nation though through the laws that are passed, through speech that's hindered, and even through the ideologies that are forced upon us. Likewise, Enemies threaten to oppress us, whether they're abroad in countries such as China or closer to home at the open southern border, even in our local neighborhoods, where inflation eats our earnings and threatens to starve us into submission to those who created inflation in the first place. But Annie Holmquist says there is a way to thwart such enemies and escape out of slavery. Witherspoon told us, quote, When the manners of a nation are pure, when true religion and internal principles maintain their vigor, the attempts of the most powerful enemies to oppress them are commonly baffled and disappointed, end quote. Now, this is not some simpleton religious mantra or naivete. Witherspoon assures us, rather, that it's something that nature itself confirms, and then he maps out the path, quote, He is the best friend to American liberty who is most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion. 
and who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down profanity and immorality of every kind. Whoever is an avowed enemy to God, I scruple not to call him an enemy to his country. It is therefore your duty in this important and critical season to exert yourselves, everyone in his proper sphere, to promote the knowledge of God, the reverence of his name, and worship and obedience to his laws. End quote. So, our culture tells us religion stinks, says Annie Holmquist, and those who follow God and his laws and morality are prudes and bigots who must be disposed of as quickly as possible. But as Witherspoon told us, it is those who stand firm on following God's laws, teaching them to others as well, who have the power to save a nation about to slip into the abyss. Simply living in a right way ourselves, meaning things like going to church or walking in right relation with God, being honest in our business practices, raising our children to be kind and respectful, then encouraging others to do the same, will go a long way toward stemming the tide of prevailing vice. She says the solution to reversing America's moral depravity is simple. Start with ourselves. When each of us personally holds up or holds to good and high morals, walking in God's ways, those ways can't help but spread to others. I know there are those who'd be tempted to dismiss this. Ah, it's too simplistic. It can never work. But do you understand what she's saying here? This isn't about forcing people to be good. This is about choosing individually for ourselves to be good people, to be upright people, people of sound character. And, I, and I'm going to throw this out there just for the sake of argument. I know some very good people, some good friends who are not believers in God, but they do believe that uh, their character matters and they hold themselves to what most people would recognize as, you know, Judeo-Christian standards of good, right and wrong. So even if they're not necessarily, you know, a believer, they nonetheless have reverence for the concept of right and wrong. They have a moral compass, and they pay attention to it. It's not just whatever I feel or whatever I think, that's the right thing. And by their behavior, they contribute to the overall good in the world. I know it's hard. And I, I think one of the biggest downfalls that we see right now is that desire to control other people. Nowhere is it more proudly manifest than in politics which is all about, well, we've got to control them, we've got to make them do what we know is best. And sadly, there are many people on the religious right who feel like, but, uh, you know, I have to do this. Otherwise, people might make wrong decisions. They might do things that I disagree with. The proper approach, the more upright road to take, is to first get your own soul squared away. Get yourself together. And people say, well, you know, it's, it's, how's that going to make a difference? You don't know the influence that you have on the people around you. I don't think any of us really, you know, I don't think we're really aware of just how deeply we can impact the world around us. But there are people who are paying attention. It could be the kids within your circle of influence. It could be your coworkers. You never know. All I know is, even if it's just that one person that you make the improvement in, the one looking back in the mirror, you have still, as Albert Nock would say, presented society with one improved unit. And that's a good thing. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. A quick shout-out to HSLAmmo.com. Located in St. George, Utah, this is a company that manufactures high-quality new and remanufactured ammunition. And it's headed up and was founded by one of the truly great individuals that I know. That would be Spencer Worthington. So I'm encouraging you not to not just to do business with them because they're a sponsor, but also because Spencer is truly a gem to have right there in your community. And uh, you would be not only supporting his efforts to create value for people, but uh, he's also created a lot of jobs for people through HSLAmmo.com. Check out the link that I put in the show notes. If you have need for ammo, go do some shopping there. Great way to, to use it as a store of value if you're worried about uh, those dollars that are losing their purchasing power. That ammo is always going to be relevant. Could be for barter, could be for training, whatever it takes. All right, let's talk about what happened to the Germans in 1930, right? This is kind of the, this is one of the big uh, morality lessons. Well, you know, we don't want to be like the Germans were when, you know, they were taken over by the Nazis and, you know, the Third Reich came to power. And yet people look at uh, the Germans and think, well, yeah, no, that was a unique situation. I mean, come on. Their society, nobody else would be dumb enough to fall into that kind of a trap. And yet I've got an article here from the Brownstone Institute. This is actually from a couple of writers, actually three writers, Paul Fridgsters, uh, Gigi Foster, and Michael Baker. Listen to this title. We can all be evil, and the Germans were nothing special. I think this is a really important connection that we need to make. You know, we can sit there and, oh, yes, those, those Germans, they were terrible back in the 1930s, and at least I would never stoop to that kind of thing. But the truth of the matter is, we are on a very similar course to what 1930s Germany was on. And very few people recognize that. So let's let's share their article. They say, for more than two years, the world has been swept up in COVID mania. Ordinary people of almost every nationality have accepted the COVID story, applauding as strong men and women have assumed dictatorial powers, suspended normal human rights and political processes, pretended that COVID deaths were the only ones that mattered, closed schools, closed businesses, prevented people from earning livelihoods, and caused mass misery, poverty, and starvation. The more these strong men and women did these things, the louder the applause and the greater the disapprobation and abuse leveled at those who decried such actions. Police bullying of those speaking out against the COVID story was cheered on by populations keen to see the naysayers brought to justice. The past two years have proved that the Germans of the National Socialist period were really nothing special. So lest we forget, the West refused to learn, or by, by now has forgotten, the central lesson of that Nazi period, 1930 to 1945. And this is despite the plethora of eyewitness voices in post-World War II art and science that made it abundantly clear what had happened. From Hannah Arendt to the Milgram experiments to the fabulous play Rhinoceros, The key point made by the top intellectuals writing about the Nazi period was that anyone could become a Nazi. There was absolutely nothing odd about the Germans who became Nazis. 
Now, they did not become Nazis because their mothers did not love them enough or because they had rejected God in their life or because of something inherent in German culture. They simply got seduced by a story and swept off their feet and out of their minds by the herd, making up their reasons as they went along. And the brutal lesson that the intellectuals of that era wanted to pass on was that pretty much everyone would have done the same under the circumstances. Evil is, in a word, banal. As Hannah Arendt pointed out, the most committed Nazis were the Gutmensch, Germans who genuinely saw themselves as good people. They'd been loved by their mothers, were dutiful followers of the local faith, paid their taxes, had ancestors who died for Germany, and were in loving family relationships. They thought they were doing the right thing, and they were roundly validated and supported in that belief by friends, family, the church, and the media. The intellectual class had come face-to-face with this truth in the 1950s. But the relentless wish of humanity to look away from uncomfortable truths made societies, and over time, even scholarly circles, forget. We told lies about the Nazis to feel good about ourselves. This self-rejecting cowardice grew over time and fed into today's debilitated, self-hating, woke culture in which you can hardly reference the Nazi period at all in polite company, much less try to open people's minds to its lessons without being accused of being a Nazi deep down yourself. Now, the Germans forgot, not because the information about the Nazi period was hidden. On the contrary, young German schoolchildren were forced to read books and watch documentaries almost constantly. They forgot the central lesson because they could not live with the idea that the behavior they were told about was normal. So like everyone else, they pretended that the Nazi period was totally abnormal, led and supported by people who were innately more evil than others. Yet nearly everyone succumbed to the Nazi madness. This lie created a problem across the generations. Within families, the young would ask their grandparents how they could possibly not have seen what was going on, how they could possibly have abided, how they could possibly have participated. These are the questions of someone who refuses to engage with the radical and awful truth that they would very probably have done the same. They did not want to think about that that way about themselves, and their parents didn't want that burden on them either, which is understandable. Who doesn't want their children to believe they will forever be as pure as snow? What a young German should have asked was, what do we need to change about our society today to prevent me from facing the same pressures to which I recognize that I too would succumb? Now, this question is very hard and very unpleasant. It's also the response of compassion rather than a rejection of the grandparents. It's much easier and simpler instead to blame the grandparents, to put their evil in a box and condemn it, to grandstand and appear highly ethical, while dismissing one's grandparents as not really human, but some kind of monster. Which is worse for humanity in the long run? The Nazi sympathizer or the observer of the Nazi sympathizer who condemns him as a monster? See, outside of Germany, people forgot the lesson much sooner. A young German wanting to look away from the awful truth that anyone can be a Nazi at least needs to pay the price for her cowardice of condemning her own family as monsters. A typical young French, Thai, or American person need make no such sacrifice. For them, it's still far easier to blame the Nazi episode on something alien to them. Now, the further away the actual memory, the more books emerged about how unique Germans had been for centuries when it came to Jews, or about how Hitler Hitler was a one-off marketing genius whose siren call was too rare to ever emerge again, 
or about how the brutality of the Nazi period was something uniquely Western. The most valuable lesson was quickly forgotten for very understandable reasons. It really is a horrible thought. The same desire to look away from the awful truth is evident today. Even among the new minority that has seen the majority of their own neighbors and family go berserk. The desire to find a new Hitler who can be blamed in the form of Klaus Schwab or in the form of a cleverly conniving Chinese leadership. The desire to blame a lack of God in society or a lack of intelligence or the apathy of a generation addicted to social media for the stampeding herd all around us. If only they had read my book. If only they had not brushed with fluoride. If only they had not lost their faith. Every personal desire is pushed into an explanation for today's horror that boils down to the fantasy that they can be fixed if they become more like me. Or said another way, a snake wormed its way into paradise and we will be fine if we cut off its head. One of the best passages of our book, The Great COVID Panic, is that this is not true and that we cannot learn the lessons of this period if we indulge in the weakness of thinking that way. There is no snake whose head we can cut off. There is no other quick fix. If we're serious about preventing a recurrence, we must proceed on the basic understanding that the mad herd we see stampeding in front of us is made up of normal people. And the future will have people just like them, who will also stampede madly in similar circumstances. We must think hard about how to prevent similar circumstances, rather than about the attributes of this or that leader or the initial state of mind populations, of mind of populations, rather. So, what is then our explanation for why strong religious groups and maverick personalities within our country were less affected by madness? Well, our explanation is that those most strongly immune to the madness from the very start were already somewhat disconnected from the mainstream, often not even having a television or social media connection to mainstream society. Being outliers at the start protected them from being swept up in the madness of the mainstream crowd. Yet this is no recipe for the future because a society of outliers is no society at all. Any social group has a core constituency of those who truly belong. The strong religious groups standing outside of the social mainstream may be inoculated against the madness of the mainstream, but they're just as prone to follow a wave of madness within their own group. Ditto for any maverick group. So for young Germans, that COVID period has a bittersweet silver lining, and it became clear again that the Nazis of the 1930s were entirely normal people and that everyone else in the world can be a Nazi too. The Germans can release themselves from the belief that there's anything abnormally evil about being German because there is a potential Nazi in all of us. What a powerful essay. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, thanks for sticking with me thus far. If you made it this far, I'm going to make it worth your while as we enter into the home stretch on today's show. I'm a climate change skeptic. Not because I don't think that uh, climate change isn't happening. I think actually it is. I just think there are more reasonable explanations than, uh, well, it's all the fault of humans and every bit of comfort or goodness or prosperity in your life. If you would just give that up and give more money and more power to politicians, somehow we could reverse some of these changes. 
See, I think there are cyclical things that are going on, and uh, and I don't think it has anything to do with how people in political power just need a little more money and a little more power. In fact, that seems very suspicious to me. But hey, I'm a skeptic. What else would I think? Got a great article here from Donald Miller Jr., actually Dr. Donald Miller Jr. Climate science spawns serfdom. This one may be well worth your time. He says, in my writings for LewRockwell.com, I first focused on climate change and finding truth in Phoenix in 2003 after attending the 21st Annual Meeting of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness held in Phoenix, Arizona that year. Willie Soon, Ph.D. and astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, gave the first talk on climate change. And he refuted claims that the 1990s was the warmest decade of the millennium and that the 20th century was warmer than any other century. Robert Balling, Ph.D., director of the Office of Climatology at Arizona State University, showed that the temperature of the Earth's atmosphere measured by balloon and satellite thermometers had not changed in the previous 25 years, even though CO2 levels were rising. And Sherwood Idso, Ph.D., president of the Center for the Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change, found that a 300 parts per million boost in the concentration of CO2 increases the productivity of plants by 30 to 50 percent, meaning orange trees produce twice as many oranges, each with 20 percent greater vitamin C, when the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere doubles from 300 to 600 parts per million. So he gives a quick history of Earth, and he talks about how planet Earth was formed from a galactic cloud of gas, dust, and rocky particles 4.5 billion years ago. It coalesced into a volcanic greenhouse planet free of any ice on it 80% of the time. Volcanoes spewed carbon dioxide into the atmosphere in concentrations more than 100 times greater than now. Bacteria, single-cell organisms 1 to 2 micrometers in size, arose 36, make that uh, 3,600 million years ago. So what, 3.6 billion years ago? These eukaryotes, cells with a nucleus, evolved... Uh, 2.3 billion years ago, followed by multicellular animals less than one millimeter in size. Land plants first appeared on Earth 470 million years ago, followed by a thousand species of dinosaurs living 250 to 66 million years ago, when atmospheric CO2 levels reached 2,000 parts per million. Now, there have been six major ice ages in the Earth's history, two of them 2,500 and make that 2.5 billion and 700 million years ago, produced a snowball Earth with glacial ice sheets reaching the equator. During one warm period 50 million years ago, the weather in the Arctic was like that in Florida today. The Arctic Ocean remained free of ice year-round and was populated by alligators and turtles. So the current or late Cenozoic Ice Age began 34 million years ago. Its most recent glaciation phase began 127,000 years ago and ended 14,700 years ago. We live in an interglacial warm phase of this ice age. And in this interglacial period, there was a natural medieval warming from 900 to 1300 A.D. and a little ice age from 1300 to 1850. New York Harbor froze in 1780 and people could walk from Manhattan across the ice to Staten Island a mile away. A modern warming followed, which also occurred on Mars, Jupiter, Pluto, and Triton, Neptune's largest moon. 
And he actually shows a chart which shows the global average temperature over the Earth's last 500 million years, determined by such things as temperature-sensitive isotopes in rocks, fossils, ice cores, and by cap carbonates, that's layers of calcium-rich rock that form only in warm water, as reported by Scott Wing and Brian Huber of the Smithsonian Institution. Now he shifts to climate scientism. Governments now fund climate science, in quotation marks, research and participate in the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. Formed in 1988, the IPCC is responsible for advancing knowledge on human-induced climate change. It focuses on the purported impact of CO2 emissions from fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas that humans use. Now, this is where it got interesting for me because I'm a big fan of suspicious observers. And it's the solar cosmic ray theory of climate change violates this IPCC proviso. Proposed in 1996, it posits that cosmic rays in the galaxy shower Earth and make low-level clouds that block heat coming from the sun. The sun encloses the solar system in a magnetic field, producing a solar wind that shields us from cosmic rays and exploding stars shoot our way. Sunspots, dark spots on the sun's surface, 23,000 miles wide that can be seen with a telescope, are pools of intense magnetism, and they vary in number on a multi-cyclic basis. There was a virtual absence of sunspots in the 17th century during the Little Ice Age age. Now, humans can't control the number of magnetic sunspots on the sun or the density of the cosmic rays that supernova emit. But the IPCC dismisses this theory and the role of the sun in climate change. Stating in 2019, evidence shows that solar activity can explain very little of the observed warming since the Industrial Revolution. And the claim that cosmic rays are a crucial player for the climate is not representative of published research on the topic. Still, there is climate research that the IPCC does not control. CERN The the European Organization for Nuclear Research is studying this theory in an ongoing multi-year cloud project. That's Cosmics Leaving Outdoor Droplets Project. And in this case, Dr. Miller says, I explore the issue of government grants for climate research in the Government Grant System, Inhibitor of Truth and Innovation, published in the Journal of Information Ethics. He actually has a link to it. Five paradigms in the biomedical and climate sciences have achieved the status of dogma, meaning they've become unassailable. One is human activity is causing global warming through increased CO2 emissions. Well, this is what Dr. Miller wrote. In 21st century America, consensus and computer models masquerade as science. They supplant experimental data. As Corcoran puts it, science has been stripped of its basis in experiment, knowledge, reason, and the scientific method, and made subject to the consensus created by politics and bureaucrats. Reduced to a belief system, a majority of scientists and groups like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change can declare, without having to provide scientific evidence, that they believe humans cause global warming. This alone makes the hypothesis become an established fact and received knowledge. Peer review compounds the problem. It competes with objective evidence as proof of truth. He goes on to say, Computer models purporting to make sense of complex data, particularly with regard to climate change, have replaced the scientific goal of supplanting complicated hypotheses with simpler ones. 
Researchers offer computer models as evidence for global warming, but when unsound assumptions and faulty data render one model unreliable, other improved ones are constructed to justify the state's desire to promulgate this truth, which it can use to exert greater control over the economy and technological progress. Isn't that something? From here he goes into talking about a new road to serfdom pointing out that before fossil fuels, biomass, mainly wood, was humanity's main source of energy for residential and industrial heat. Horses and mules provided transportation and oxen work. Whale oil kept lamps lit and served as a lubricant. Life was hard. I mean, in 1800, there were a billion humans living on Earth. Life expectancy was about 25 years. Per capita annual income was $100. Now, 200 years later, there are 8 billion people living on the planet. Average average longevity is 69 years, and per capita annual income, $9,000. And this striking change in human fortune comes from using fossil fuels. Blast furnaces use coke produced from coal to smelt metals for constructing air-conditioned buildings and homes and making automobiles, trains, and airplanes with various grades of oil used to run them. Petrochemical industries use the hydrocarbons in oil to make thousands of products that improve the health, security, and well-being of people, things that did not exist 200 years ago before oil was discovered. Some of these are plastics in smartphones and computers, in containers that keep food fresh, in synthetic rubber for shoes, tires, and gloves, in burglar alarm systems, in asphalt for roads, in pharmaceuticals, fertilizers, etc. Bottom line here. Even now... The majority of people on Earth live in poverty, where 3 billion people use less electricity than required to run a refrigerator. And another 3 billion people live in abject poverty without any electricity. Banning fossil fuels and succumbing to a zero-carbon future, he says, is the new road to serfdom. This is The Brian Hyde Show.